Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining this Global Council podcast on the UK political parties conference season, which has uh, just finished mercifully for us who uh, ended up going to them. So uh, my name is Alex Dawson. I am the UK Politics and Policy Practice Lead here at Global Council, and I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Rebecca Park, who's a Senior Practice Lead for Financial Services, and Lila Housen-Smith, who is a Senior Associate in the UK Politics and Policy team. Uh, And we all had the privilege and pleasure of being at Conservative Party Conference, which finished uh, this week. And um, I think we wanted to kind of take the opportunity just to kind of now we're all away from Manchester and back in London, sort of just to kind of have a bit of a debrief and a bit of a, an analysis of what conference season meant, what it means for uh, the future of UK policy and politics in the near term, uh, and, and whether there's a kind of anything more sort of substantial kind of coming out of it that we should be paying attention to uh, as the dust settles uh, on the various briefings and speeches and events that were given. So look, Lila, I'd just like to kind of begin with you. This was the first uh, conference that has been held in person since 2019, the start of the COVID pandemic. First conference that, proper conference really, that's been held by the Conservatives since the very impressive election at the 2019 general election victory. Just describe to us kind of what the atmosphere was like, uh, how it felt on the ground, and just any kind of observations that you had uh, from attending it. Great. So, yeah, I mean, something that, I think is forgotten amongst kind of very kind of immediate political issues and kind of speculation about um, Boris Johnson's leadership and his future rivals is that Boris Johnson remains incredibly popular with um, the Conservative base. And that was kind of one of my key observations from from the conference was that ultimately um, his style, um, his views, his ways of expressing themselves um, mean that he he remains really really quite popular um and actually when we see kind of some of this speculation about leadership that's really about what happens in you know five to ten years time not the immediate my other observation was that despite the kind of news um continuing issues around supply chains and and disruption actually that was fairly invisible at conference um conservative mps activists were much more interested in all being back together, sort of socialising, talking again, and thinking about the policy issues they think are going to define the next three or so years, which they continue to see as kind of levelling up net zero global Britain, rather than these supply chain issues, which either were kind of invisible in terms of um, kind of immediate policy choices that result from it, or or really um, because there aren't kind of immediate solutions to it. and actually many of them agree with Boris Johnson that this is a short-term issue that isn't isn't a necessarily result of Brexit and the need to reorientate our labour market. It was quite unusual because there were there were some other elements of disputes which kind of felt like the political equivalent of the dog that didn't bark. I mean the government in September sort of held an extraordinary kind of mini budget effectively to put up to announce an increase in national insurance rates uh, we've got corporation tax increasing to, um, you know, middle of the pack in the G7 levels uh, in a, a year or so's time. 
And I mean, I think that a lot of people were expecting there to be a bit more of an argument over tax rates. Can you explain why that didn't happen? Is that sort of really a function of what you described there, the Tory tribe coming together, not wishing to kind of air its dirty laundry in public? Or is it just that actually the right of the party has to reconcile itself to the fact that Boris Johnson is incredibly popular and there's no getting away from him or the electoral coalition that he's built in the red wall? So, yeah, I think it's that Boris remains incredibly popular. The conferences, particularly when you have an 80 seat majority, are fundamentally about coming together and particularly for the Conservatives, showing themselves as a, as a relatively unified party and family. And I think that's kind of did has characterised conferences before. I mean, I think, you know, when when Ian Duncan Smith was uh, not far off being deposed from being leader, he was still receiving, you know, several standing ovations at Conservative Party conference. Yeah, I, I think, think that's some very talented stage management going on there. Well, but I, but, I, but, I, but I think but I think there, there is always from kind of having been in the whip's office, there is always a bit of stage management at a party conference. And I think it was notable that actually quite a lot of the MPs that were there were MPs that have that were elected in 2019, have broadly, you know, feel grateful for Boris Johnson for having won their seats. And also um, kind of um, have, have benefited in terms of kind of recent promotions. So I think there, there was a sense that perhaps some of the divisions that do exist within the parliamentary party um, weren't represented. I think particularly on the um, social care plan that was set out about a month ago, I think the fact that the NICS increase isn't coming into t- until April means that MPs are kind of thinking, well, let's see how the dust is settled in terms of cost of living. Let's see how people have kind of received this. Let's see where we are with the NHS backlog. If if the Conservatives can prove that this um, tax increase has actually allowed them to, to, to get a grip of the backlog and public finances, then maybe it was the right call. And maybe it does mean that, you know, much closer to the election, we'll, we'll be able to um, lower taxes again. And actually, they kind of see the electoral sense in that. One area where I'd point out that there was a little bit of division and rumbling was more around the net zero issue. I think there's already been a bit of caucusing around um, MPs like Steve Baker, obviously saying that, you know, they're a bit worried about the cost of net zero. I think what was interesting at conference and particularly in some of the fringes was that MPs even that support and understand the kind of links that the government's trying to make between net zero and um, sort of green growth in in the northeast, for example, are not kind of resigned to having their constituents pay for it. And that, to me, is a bit of a tension for the government going into the spending review. Actually, there's still not a massive consensus about the way in which whether this whether we use subsidy or regulation. The fact that Conservative MPs are going to particularly get behind this, particularly you know if there is a is a campaign about the fact that we're all being forced to rip out our boilers, which doesn't doesn't feel kind of unlikely so I think that's that that was the only sort of clear fault line so I mean that that fault line there for conservative MPs I mean you know I'd sort of yeah I can totally I could totally see that I mean they for, for a lot of the, the the sort of the business people that might be listening to this podcast though I think there was there was another kind of significant issue which was even if it wasn't something that was being discussed on the floor of the conference uh, was certainly part of the kind of the conversation between the politicians and the media uh, was the sense that the government was attacking business over issues such as immigration and the cost of living and and what people what businesses were doing to raise uh, wages? I mean, Becca, just kind of bringing you in here, 
what should we read into the significance of this fight and this dispute? How long lasting do you sort of envision it to be? And how does it tie in really with this kind of coming argument we're about to see that plays in with what Lida was talking about in terms of um, uh, the costs of net zero, uh, but also a little bit what we were talking about earlier in terms of national insurance increases um, and other tax rises? So firstly, I think businesses should realise that what we've seen over the last few days should not become a surprise. We know that this government and this number 10, if it sees a political crisis or a challenge coming forward, it will be very keen to ensure it's on the side of public opinion. And so it will be very quick to understand and seek to understand how the public is thinking about these issues, what the public concerns are, and who the public thinks is responsible. And I think in that first instance, what we're seeing right now with the energy crisis and the shortage of HGV drivers, you know, the government is feeling pretty confident that actually, in the eyes of the voter, it is only partially responsible for these problems. And actually, many voters would hold business just as responsible as they would hold the government, if not more so. And couple that with this kind of broader growing sentiment that we see in multiple research, including research we've done from GC over the summer, that actually the public are very skeptical about motivations behind business. So they see price rises as not just a symptom of cost rises, but actually potentially a symptom of poor business management, a desire to increase profitability, but also a sense that they're not necessarily playing their fair part of the challenge post-pandemic, post-recovery. And I think particularly on the debate that we've got into over the last few weeks, which is this very strong message coming from business that with a lack of skill shortages, one of the ways to really address that is through kind of reform of the UK's immigration and visa regime to enable skilled workers to come to the UK. Well, that's an issue that we all universally know polls incredibly badly. And I think from a government perspective, if you know that the public backs your view that actually there's more that business needs to be doing here and paying higher wages, whatever the economic rationale of that may or may not be, is actually publicly popular. You've got to be pretty confident about going out in the media and going around in the, in the conference fringe and putting forward a, a challenging message back to business. And that's nothing new. We saw this government do it at the start of the pandemic. You know, when the government thought there was going to be a challenge over finance and the flow of finance to SMEs and corporates, the banking sector was very much in the firing line in those early number 10 briefings from Downing Street, some very difficult rhetoric coming from the Chancellor in his early weeks, but also from the PM. And I think this is a playbook we've seen the government use repeatedly. And yes, it can you, it's been packaged up as this is classic Johnson doubling down. Actually, I think it's a, a PM and a number 10 that are very confident in their grassroots and their core base and very confident in the media support them on this narrative. And where they see political talents, they will utilize it. And arguably this party conference to kind of go to Lila's point, gave them that space. We'd just come out of a Labour Party conference that was incredibly focused on internal party management. The government knew it didn't want to make too many policy commitments ahead of the upcoming spending review. So it was confident a couple of years after an election with a strong majority of having a conference that was much more focused on appealing to its party membership, its core base, and sort of having a bit more of an internal conversation, even if that creates a challenging conversation with business. I mean, just kind of looking looking back on the research that you cited there, Becca, you know, do we have any indication of what the biting point is um, for the public to think that actually this is less of a problem of caused by business and maybe more of a problem caused by government when it comes to cost of living increases? Interestingly, it's about a third, third, third. So a third of the public think that government should be in the lead and the responsible. A third of the public think business is in the lead and responsible. And a third of the public think that, you know, the Bank of England, the authorities are responsible in respect of controlling inflation and interest rates. And I think 
that's really interesting because it sort of mirrors exactly where responsibility sat coming out of the financial crisis, whereby the British public viewed the financial crisis as much a responsibility to solve for the banking sector and for industry as it sought for government and the regulators to solve. And we saw similar figures coming out of the pandemic. And a lot of businesses will think that they are possibly coming out with some positive reputation out of the pandemic, um, a sort of sense of a bit of a crisis halo, i.e. the idea that where firms in retail and hospitality and core sectors stepped up to the plate and were seen to be supporting public services in the effort, they've built up some reputational value and some reputational capital. And I think what the cost of living kind of debate and conversation that we're in right now shows is how fragile that capital is and how quickly it can be eroded if you are viewed by the public as not playing your part right now as we go into what's going to be a difficult winter and as we go into the economic recovery. Well, and I think also the, the, the way it was treated at Conservative Party conference sort of highlights the, 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 the risks uh, inherent in business for business in terms of kind of trying to be as political as government is. And, you know, ultimately, these guys are elected um, partly because they are good at politics. And they've got the finger on the pulse with, um, you know, certainly a constituency, if not you know, if not with the wider British public necessarily, but they've kind of got their base and they know their base and they know how to kind of tickle their base. And I think that's what we saw with Boris Johnson's speech um, on uh, yesterday or Wednesday, depending on when you're listening to this, which was frankly, by his standards, a really well-polished reviewer kind of Boris performance. Lina, I just kind of want to bring you in. Were there any other kind of speeches given by the other cabinet ministers or even just any other sort of performances given by cabinet ministers, whether on the fringe, on the media, which you thought were notable and which you thought kind of prompted um, you know, people taking a second look at them? So I think what was interesting, particularly post-reshuffle, was actually, if you look kind of by pure policy announcements, um, the Home Secretary actually kind of had, was given or allowed to announce the most by number 10. Um, clearly, every single policy announcement that is made at conference goes through Treasury and number 10. So where most secretaries of state were actually uh, given quite limited latitude to kind of announce anything that kind of had associated spending but also kind of broad policy direction um, she was actually given quite a lot to announce some of that will have been um, to do with kind of recent events and kind of the topicality particularly of issues around the Met and treatment of women but actually it shows both the PM and number 10's prioritization of the crime agenda and, and that importance but also that I think that Boris Johnson politically wants um, Priti Patel to continue to be a bit of a bulwark against other key cabinet figures like Rishi and, and Liz Truss, who are also kind of popular and vying for kind of Conservative Party members' interests. So I think, I think that was kind of interesting, both from a political perspective and also a sort of policy priorities perspective. Um, more generally, I think what was interesting was the sort of role given and, and the um, popularity of events involving the Metro mayors. Um, clearly, Van Houten continues to be the sort of rising star of the Tory party and I think had kind of pulled quite big audiences, but also kind of was able to come across both as a brilliant communicator, but also a um, sort of credi increasingly credible policy person on issues like net zero and sectoral development and local government and devolution which I think will all be important as the government continues to kind of step change into actually delivering something on on leveling up. Well I mean you know I, I think just to kind of pick up on your point it does seem to me that you have quite an interesting sort of bifurcation in the Conservative Party now where you know the most popular members of the government are all in the great offices of state 
uh, and actually you have relatively few underneath that rank who are genuine sort of heartthrobs for the party faithful. And then you also have a series of politicians outside of London who are popular. I suppose this used to be taken a little bit by Ruth Davidson um, before she stepped down as leader of the Scottish Conservatives, but Ben Houchen and to an extent Andy Street both have a kind of a significant constituency that you wouldn't normally find in a party that has tended to sort of be as sort of centralising and sort of centralised in a way as the Conservative Party. I mean, the, the, the person you didn't mention there was Michael Gove, um, who's been uh, charged with, you know, the, the, the task of defining and delivering on levelling up. And obviously there's been a lot of ink spilt over levelling up and what precisely it is. Are we any clearer as to sort of how he is going to go about his job and whether he will succeed, you know, after the party conference? So I think we are a bit clearer. I think people will be dismissive because it's still not a policy program. It's still not got, you know, tons of um, costed proposals attached. But actually what we're seeing kind of developing is a bit of um, how do we make people kind of prouder of their towns? How do we spend money locally? How do we give um, a few more powers to local government to do that? And then couple with that some supply side reform around productivity and skills and training across the country to to deliver something that's maybe a bit more structurally profound but I think those two elements are clearly what he's kind of getting at I think the question is is the treasury willing to commit kind of significant pots of money to skills and training they've kind of trotted out the same policies on this throughout COVID we saw the uh, chancellor extend the kickstart scheme again there's not kind of been a huge amount of new policy there and also um is the pm at number 10 willing to kind of devolve more powers or look again at the local government settlement which is always kind of an interesting area and clearly clearly has kind of it can be linked well to the leveling up agenda but actually when you get into the detail of it it's pretty political because this may involve giving your giving additional powers to you know the opposition in particular areas and why you would ever want to do that as a, as a kind of government with an 80 seat majority is never quite clear to me so I think yes we've got some further clarity but I think there's still quite a few stumbling blocks and the question is does Michael Gove have the political capital and Boris Johnson behind him to deliver on some of these things well yeah I mean I th- yeah I think sort of there's a there is now much more clarity on the what the problem is the how Becca you you also had the the the, the privilege and pleasure of heading down to Brighton for, for a brief period uh, to take part in an event at Labour Party conference you know comparing the two events sort of what do you think are the sort of the main things that people on this uh, people listening to this podcast should be thinking about when they think about the Labour Party in comparison to the Conservative Party and what that says about the state of the uh, the horse race, as it were, uh, you know, a couple of years out from an election. Absolutely. I mean, I think, firstly, the kind of the health warning here quite literally is, if you can still feel the consequences of the conference cold, it is probably too early in the process to start <laughs> making large sweeping statements about what the conference season means for the future of UK politics, because we kind of, we overanalyze so much about what goes on in Brighton and Manchester during the conference season. And actually how much of it has real long-term lasting effect is often still to be questioned. But I think my kind of initial thoughts from kind of having spent time at, at both the Labour and Tory over the last couple of weeks. Firstly, for Labour, you've got what you would very much expect at this point in the conference cycle in the kind of electoral cycle, which is party conference in some ways is almost easier to kind of 
stage manage in opposition than I think it is in government, because you have a very clear purpose. You're all walking, working towards that next core electoral moment. You're not trying to kind of shoehorn conference between upcoming kind of COP agendas or budgets or kind of key policy moments and key announcements and thinking about as and when you should manage the news flow. Actually, conference provides a very clear opportunity where you know you've got guaranteed media coverage, you know you've got guaranteed political interest, and you can really start to pick up the narrative agenda. The challenge with that is when you're in opposition, much of your conference should also be spent probably managing internal party issues. And what you don't want to do is have too many of those fights out in the open or kind of with the, with the kind of full navel gazing kind of media looking at you and trying to determine who said what and, and what that means and interprets. But I think what we saw from Labour was a real attempt by Keir Starmer to start moving that swing back towards that kind of more centrist kind of um, centre part of the Labour Party, trying to sort of finish that kind of debate and fight between the kind of the Corbyn wing of the party and those that are more centrist, while still trying to show that he's keeping up with the pledges and promises he made. And actually, I think he tried, to, he navigated that very well this year at conference. I think, you know, a much better outcome from the conference season than last year's kind of virtual discussions and some of the kind of issues and conversations that broke out. But what I also heard a lot from businesses who were down at Labour and then heading up to Conservatives is there was a genuine warmth and a genuine desire to have a two-way conversation with business through Labour Party conference that has not existed for some time. And actually that the, the rhetoric and the policy announcements we saw coming from, from Rachel Reeves and her commitment that, you know, they were, there was a desire to work with business was very much backed up in the um, sort of private dialogues and ongoing conversations in the fringe events around Labour Party conference. And I think that left a much more positive sentiment for a lot of companies coming away from Brighton who feel that that sort of that conversation is now genuine, albeit um, as to how much time they kind of invest in it and where the focus is, you know, there's still a view that we're a few years out from an election. So they're sort of looking to see the, the party make further progress. It does also highlight attention to drawing back onto what we were talking about earlier where the government feels pretty confident, you know, knocking business in certain ways because they uh, they think the public's not on the side of business, while at the same time, Labour's kind of moving in the opposite direction. Is this, you know, does this just point to the fact that Labour and the Conservatives have, frankly, slightly different challenges uh, when it comes to this issue, or, or is it pointing to a wider realignment? I think it's exactly that. I think they've got slightly different challenges coming to this issue. I also think it points towards, quite frankly, a, a fairly confident Conservative Party um, on the grounds that they know how bad or they view how bad relationships got between business and the Labour Party, that they feel pretty confident, even when they're applying some challenge and some very public challenging difficult messages, they can still maintain those relationships, they can still claim to be the party of business. I also think it gives you a sense of how confident they're feeling electorally, that actually, as long as they remain in government and, you know, um, likely to kind of be the governing party after the next election, they feel confident about putting a challenging message out to business and, and less like they may lose some of that support over to, to Keir Starmer. Now, how that pans out over the next 18 months will be interesting to watch. But I, I do think that that sort of that message that we saw from Johnson and the team probably gives you a sense that actually they, they feel pretty confident about their long-term business relations, despite the rhetoric, despite the narrative that's been coming forward. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the kind of the assessment within the Conservatives is that the period of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell was so kind of potentially shocking to business was that um, they, they, they've got kind of capital in the bank, as it were. OK, look, I think sort of just one, one final question to Lila. We've got, you know, the end of conference season really starts the beginning of uh, kind of the, the you know the sort of the back to school and the kind of the big autumn term in uh, British politics. What are the key things that we should be looking out for over the next couple of months, um, just before we wrap up? 
Right. So clearly the spending review is going to be crucial. I think the expectation is that the Treasury is going to surprise on the upside. But I think clearly um, the extent to which the um, non-protected budgets of departments are cut is going to be important in sort of identifying those departments that are going to have more latitude um, to kind of move ahead with policy issues is going to be important. I think looking forward to COP, I think the government is going to be under pressure in terms of showing kind of momentum on their own net zero goals and, and, and actually um, putting some of that detail into the delivery while also not upsetting elements of the party who don't think that the, the average taxpayer should be, should be paying for this. Also think that something that's been a bit forgotten is the government is still due to publish a levelling up white paper. Um, I think that's now been pushed back to sort of October, November time. But clearly that will be tied into the spending review in terms of where the government's allocating funds. But I think it will also be indicative of the extent of um, kind of Michael Gove's ability within um, the newer department to still sort of galvanise government and get them sort of singing to his tune and, and, th and that narrative. So I think those are sort of the first three things that, that businesses should, should be thinking about. All right. Well, look, that is very, very helpful. Um, and many thanks to, to, to you, Becca and Lila, um, for uh, appearing on this podcast. And me very many thanks uh, to all those listening and subscribing to the GC series of podcasts. Uh, it's been a delight to um, uh, accompany you uh, over the last half hour. Um, and uh, I'm sure we'll be back to talk further about the spending review, about COP26 and the domestic political implications of that, and about levelling up white papers and net zero white papers uh, in the coming months. Uh, many thanks. Goodbye. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.